So, hello. We have been going through Isaiah 61 in our Anointed series, haven't we? We've been looking at this incredible passage um, where Isaiah prophesies about all that Jesus will be, all that he's going to do, what his mission is going to look like, and what he's going to be anointed to bring about. And I don't know about you, but I cannot read this passage or listen to it without faith being stirred in me. It's such a wonderful passage, isn't it? So let's just read it through again. I know we've heard it a few times now, and then we're going to zone in on just a small part of it. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. It's beautiful, isn't it? That's what Jesus has come to do for us in our lives and in our communities. But I think one of the reasons that it stirs our soul so much is that as Christians, we have this incredible privilege of being called to join in with this. Through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to bring good news to the poor, aren't we? We're called to bind up the brokenhearted. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you want to be someone who proclaims the year of the Lord's favor? And through this passage, we also get a glimpse of what God's kingdom completed, of what our heavenly Jerusalem is going to look like, a city without sadness, a city without brokenness or poverty, a city full of riches and joy and wholeness in relationship with God. That's our inheritance. That is our future. Hallelujah. So that's the big picture this morning, but we're going to come in close and focus on just a couple of lines from this passage. To comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. When we talk about Zion in this context, we're talking about God's people, the church. All of us in our lives will, throughout our lives in truth, will experience mourning on a number of different levels about a huge variety of different circumstances. This life is full of mourning. I home educate three of my five kids and uh, we were learning about the Stone Age earlier in the year. I love history. And one of the things that fascinates me about the earliest evidence we have for God's creation of people is that they are already displaying three key things that God has put within them. The first is creativity, just like God creates out of an overflow of who he is. We see the first men and women painting on the side of caves. Secondly, we see worship just down the road from us, Stonehenge, made by people longing to reach out to the God who made them, looking for that. It's placed deep within their souls to look for God. Finally, we see mourning, right? The earliest evidence we have of people living in Britain, what they left behind more than anything else is evidence of mourning. Long barrows, round barrows, bell barrows, disc barrows. Hampshire's riddled with them if you want to visit them. Even at the dawn of humanity, people wanted to make permanent that which was so transitory, that which was, had been lost to them. They wanted to remember the dead. 
The Bible says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We know we were made to live forever. We feel that deep in our souls, don't we? Some of us know that privilege was taken from us when we chose to turn away from God in that first garden. And so it grates on us terribly that people die, that they don't go on forever, and so we mourn. And we mourn for many other things besides death. We mourn for all the ways that life has gone and does go awry, for all that could have been and should have been and would have been if it wasn't for the hand of sin and death and sickness and disease and disaster and war and famine and jealousy and pride and selfishness. All of us have experienced disappointments, broken friendships or relationships, life not turning out as we'd hoped, sickness, death, heartache and suffering. When I'm talking about mourning, I'm talking about all of these things and more. There's not a shortage of things to mourn, is there? In the 30 minutes it takes me to preach this morning, over 450 children globally will have died due to poverty. In 2023, 450 children in half an hour will have died due to poverty. Eight people will have become homeless in Britain. Two women will have been killed by a violent husband or partner. 45 people globally, mostly women and children, will enter modern-day slavery in the form of trafficking. Five people in this country will have become the victims of knife crime. And nearly 550 people will die from cancer globally, all in the space of 30 minutes. If you're experiencing suffering due to one of those issues and would like help or prayer, please come and find us after the service. Find somebody. We'd love to help you. I've lost where I am now. There is a, but even with these shocking statistics, I've barely scratched the surface of the suffering that exists globally or on our doorsteps. There is a world of suffering in our churches and in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, isn't there? It is mourning that has existed for millennia and it is mourning that will continue to exist for as long as this earth remains. No amount of good politics, well-meaning charities or medical breakthroughs can ultimately change that, as amazing and godly as that work can be. And yet we live with a secular worldview, a philosophy, if you like, that ultimately has nothing to offer mourners. In fact, the secular West is the first society in the whole of history whose beliefs offer no hope, no meaning, and no purpose in suffering, death, and mourning. The secular West believes there's nothing beyond death, that one day the sun will die, And everything humanity has fought for, everything humanity has suffered for, everything humanity has reached for will be gone, forgotten, completely obliterated. No wonder anxiety, depression and suicide are at an all-time high. No wonder the West pours so much time and money into avoiding suffering and mourning altogether. But God, Christianity... The Bible has a wealth, a wealth of help and hope and comfort to offer us. It astounds me, genuinely astounds me, how relevant, real and raw the Bible is on this subject. 
2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. In Isaiah 61, Jesus is called to comfort those who mourn, and so are we. This morning, we're going to look at four ways that God comforts us. We're going to look at some beautiful truths and some deep theology that is going to help ground us and pull us through our darkest moments, and it's going to help us give that comfort away to others too. First, we receive it, then we give it away. Now, just as an aside, although I'm going to be talking this morning solely about the comfort and support that God can bring us, I'm not trying to diminish God-given resources like cognitive behavioral therapy, talking therapies, or medical interventions. They have their place and they are important in healing and recovery. But I'm focusing on uh, what God is, how God is comforting us this morning. So, God weeps with us. He walks with us, he works with us, and finally he restores us. Those are the four things we're going to be looking at this morning. He weeps with us, he walks with us, he works with us, he restores us. So we see in the Bible that we are to be a people who mourn. That mourning is not something to be brushed under the carpet or avoided or put on a pedestal, but that mourning is the right response to the sadness and brokenness in this world and in our own lives. As part of my prep this morning, I read a book called A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. And Lewis was obviously this wonderful author, this amazing theologian, this incredible mind. And yet in his um, book, where he records the grief he experienced on losing his wife, it's almost hard to recognize that it's Lewis writing it at all. He is distraught incoherent, questioning everything he believed about God and himself, barely holding on to sanity, it would seem. When it was first published, people assumed that he'd lost his faith. Actually, if you read it to the end, it's obvious he hadn't. But it's a beautiful piece of mourning. What better testament to the depth of Lewis's love for his wife, Joy, than that he was a gibbering wreck who questioned all that he stood for when she died. And we see this kind of lamenting modeled throughout the Bible and even by Jesus himself. I love the story in the Bible of Jesus' close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus has died. He's in a tomb. Jesus has taken his sweet time getting there. And when Mary sees him, this is what happens in John 11. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus had the solution to Mary's mourning. He had the solution to Lazarus' death. He could have said, dry your eyes, Mary. I'm going to raise Lazarus to life. Stop crying. Everything's okay now. I'm here. But he didn't. He loved Lazarus and he loved Mary and he was overcome with compassion. So he weeps with her instead. What is the most powerful way that anyone has ever met you in your mourning and your suffering? It's not with wise words, is it? Though there might be a time for that later on in the right context. 
It's not with solutions. It's not by trying to shut you down or cheer you up. It's by getting in there with you and grieving alongside you. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. Jesus was someone who wept with others. Romans 12, 15 tells us to do the same. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's powerful, isn't it? As we mourn and as we suffer, Jesus mourns and suffers with us. That's what we want. That's what we need. Charles Spurgeon said, A Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. But he did weep, and he weeps with us. Secondly, he walks with us. My family and I, we love going to West Point. Now, West Point is a Bible week that we've historically gone to as a church. It's got a new name now. It's called Commission Festival. Lots of us will be going there in the summer, and I hope this story doesn't put you off because it really is good fun. Anyway... (laughs) One year, we rock up, um, we've just had our fifth baby, fifth and final baby, five months previously, he's not weaned yet, and three o'clock in the morning on the first night, I'm in my little compartment of the tent with my baby Bertie, and I am feeling really desperate, I am so overwhelmed, I feel so trapped, I just want to go home, but I know I can't, it's taken me days of prep to get there, it's going to take days of prep to get back and haven't any sleep, and to be honest, my mental health wasn't in a great place anyway, baby number five was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back (laughs) and um, anyway I got a couple hours sleep the sun came up the next day and my husband said to me Becky why don't you go to the evening meeting tonight I'll put the kids to bed I'll message you if Bertie needs feeding so I went to the meeting I sat right at the back my expectations were very low I was thinking any minute now my phone's going to go off but as the I started to worship I had this incredible picture, vision, if you like, in my head. Really simple, but so powerful to me. It was like everything else just faded away. And I was walking through a green valley, and I was all alone, and I felt really desperate. And then down the mountainside, Jesus came, and he put his arm around me, and we just walked along together. And I can't tell you a thing that happened in that meeting because it was like I was really there and God's presence fell on me so thickly, so strongly in a way I've never experienced before or since. And I just wept and I wept and he ministered to my heart. He sorted me right out, I tell you. He did a beautiful thing in me. I I poured out all my sadness and all my suffering and all my doubts and everything. And, um, And that stayed with me for weeks and months and years afterwards and we see this kind of walking modeled throughout the Bible God walks with us through pain and suffering Isaiah 43 when you pass through the waters I will be with you and the rivers will not overwhelm you when you walk through the fire you will not be scorched and the flame will not burn you do not fear for I am with you God promises us that he will be with us through the fire, through the flood, through the heartache and the pain and the mourning, every difficulty we will face. Now that's not to say it won't be hard. That's not to say we will always feel as if God is with us. I don't want to make the mistake of sugarcoating our suffering today. This truth doesn't mean we won't rail against our suffering and mourning at times. It doesn't mean we won't feel hurt or abandoned by God. At my worst moments, and I do have them sometimes, I like to go for a drive. It's the only place I can get a bit of peace in my house. And I shout and I rage at God and I pour out exactly how I'm feeling, everything that I'm feeling before him. 
And I used to worry that I shouldn't be doing this until I read Job and realized that he did this and God counted him as righteous because he brought all his anger and his doubts to God. He allowed his desperation to drive him to God, not from him. And on the way back from my drive, I always say, God, but I trust you and I love you. And even though I can't see you in this, I'm going to carry on looking for you. God can take your anger, your hurt, and your sadness. Indeed, he wants to take it. Because the best gift that God can give us in our suffering is his presence. Job discovered that. That is worth more than anything. Let's be those who let our mourning drive us to God, not from him. If you are mourning today, if you are suffering today, if you are walking through a difficult time, Jesus wants to walk with you through that. He wants to put his arm around you. He wants to let his presence envelop you. He wants you to know he's with you in the pain, even if it doesn't seem like it. So he weeps with us and he walks with us. Thirdly, he works with us. Often in Christianity, two seemingly opposing thoughts are true. They sit together and they need each other, even though they seem to contradict one another. Last year, I preached a sermon about God's goodness. I talked about how we cannot call God good unless we can also call him severe. The two have to come together. This morning, we have two different opposing views that we need to marry together if we're going to see the breadth of God's comfort. The first is that God is completely sovereign. He is completely in control and nothing, nothing happens without his say-so. He is all-powerful and completely in charge. Now that's comforting because we can know that we're in his hands, that someone infinitely bigger, stronger and wiser than us is orchestrating not only our lives and our mess, but also everyone else's lives and mess, the whole of history. But that truth, if it sits on its own, not only calls into question God's goodness, because bad things happen, but also our responsibility for our own actions. Because if God is calling all the shots, then I'm not really responsible for the things I do or the choices I make, am I? So the seemingly opposing truth that needs to sit alongside God's sovereignty is that we have complete autonomy over our actions and our choices. If we don't, then God is the one guilty of evil, not us. God is completely sovereign and in control. We have complete autonomy over our actions. Both of these things are true. And yet we think, how can both these things possibly be true at the same time? Well, first of all, I think it is one of those truths that our finite little brains will never quite understand. But I find it helpful to think of it like this. Supposing I'm a great artist... And I send a piece of paper to every child in the country and I say, you can do whatever you want on this piece of paper. Paint on it, draw on it, scribble on it, screw it up, sculpt it into something. They send it back to me. And with it, I build a huge, beautiful picture that I'd always intended on creating. That is similar to what God does with our lives. He takes all the mess and the chaos, the sin and the sickness, the suffering and the mourning, all of our choices, good and bad, and he paints with it a beautiful picture that he always intended on. And this is an important theological truth that is so comforting because it means that whatever suffering we are walking through, we are not at the mercy of our circumstances We are not even at the mercy of our own choices, though our choices do have consequences. We are not in the wrong place. We haven't stepped outside of God's plan for our lives. He isn't shocked or surprised. As hard and as desperate as the place we find ourselves in may be, it is not outside of God's control or his goodness. 
There are two famous verses in the Bible that talk about this, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. In the Old, we have the story of Joseph in his special coat, don't we? Brothers sell him into slavery, languishes in prison for years, and yet, of course, God raises him up, and he saves not only his nation and the nations around him from famine, but also his own family. And he says to his brothers at the end, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Then in the New Testament in Romans, Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This is the truth we're trying to grasp, that God works all things, all things together for good. I've seen this so many times in my own life, difficult circumstances that look so hopeless on the surface, but turn out to produce much good in the long term. Tim Keller, in his outstanding book, honestly outstanding if you get a chance to read it, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, it's called, he says this, God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. God allows evil just enough space so that it will defeat itself. Isn't that an incredible comfort? God even has evil within his control. He is frustrating the enemy by using what he intends for bad to actually bring about good. How brilliant is that? And of course, this is displayed most beautifully, most powerfully on the cross. Judas, Pontius Pilate, the mob in the courtyard who called for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified, all of them living their lives with complete autonomy over their choices, yet their choice is crucial to God's plan to save humanity. The enemy thinking naively and arrogantly that he had won a great victory, that he had killed the Son of God. But of course God was not surprised or defeated or worried. Of course it was all in his hands, in his grand plan. He was the one in control, not men, not the enemy. Jesus might have suffered terribly, but his resurrection conquered the power of death and sin for all time. Though we will still die, yet we shall live for eternity in the presence of God because Jesus has died our death for us. He has taken the punishment for our sin and so now even death has no hold on us. And so we do not grieve as those who have no hope, do we? Instead, we grieve as those who know that death is no longer the end, but only the beginning. That is our greatest hope and our greatest comfort, isn't it? That Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and paid our debt so that we could be reconciled with a Father God who loves us. Tim Keller again. The great theme of the Bible itself is how God brings fullness of joy, not just despite, but through suffering. Just as Jesus saved us, not in spite of, but because of what he endured on the cross. And so there is a peculiar, rich, poignant joy that seems to come to us only through and in suffering. God works with us not only to bring about good, but also to shape us and refine us and to throw us into his arms. I know that my own faith would be very shallow and my need for God very little and my walk with God very distant if it weren't for suffering and mourning and pain. And so I am grateful that God has allowed hardship in my life, even though I tell you what, I didn't feel like it at the time. So God weeps with us. 
He walks with us, he works with us, and finally, hallelujah, he restores us. Because God works with us, because he is sovereign and completely in control, he can also and will also bring about restoration in our lives and in the grand sweep of history. 1 Peter 5.10, and the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What a hope. What a comfort. We can trust that after we have suffered for a season, and it might be a long season, God will restore us, renew us, and strengthen us. That is a huge comfort when we are walking through something difficult, isn't it? Biblical restoration doesn't just mean that he gives us back what we lost. It doesn't just mean he sort of sellotapes us back together and hopes for the best. It means that if we have allowed him to work in us, if we have worked with him rather than against him, then we will actually be stronger, wiser, and walking more closely with him than we were before. We are changed. We're actually in a better place than before. It means that God's working together of all things for good has come to fruition, or at least is beginning to come to fruition in our lives. What he was doing in the unseen is now beginning to bear fruit, is beginning to be seen and felt. That's biblical restoration. How does he restore us? Well, earlier I read part of the story where Mary falls at Jesus' feet and Jesus weeps with her over the death of Lazarus. I have great admiration for this Mary. She is a fantastic role model for us. She loved Jesus so much and she sat at his feet no matter what the circumstances. This is the same Mary who sat at Jesus' feet learning from him while her sister Martha was busy in the kitchen. This is the same Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil in John 12 while Judas looked on in scorn. Rather than her grieving over Lazarus, driving her away from Jesus, Mary sat at his feet. It drove her to him. Don't you love that? Don't you want to be someone who sits at Jesus' feet? What better place is there to sit than that? If we want God to restore us, we've got to sit at his feet. That is my greatest ambition, is to be like someone like Mary who sits at his feet. That is my deepest need. That is the place of most joy and peace, to sit at his feet. That's how restoration comes about. That's how God restored me that time at West Point, and it's how he wants to restore us today. I'm going to give some time for that at the end. So God is wanting to bring about restoration in each of our lives and in each of our circumstances, but he also restores on a much bigger scale than that, doesn't he? The whole of history is being knitted together, culminating in that final day when Jesus returns and a new heavens and a new earth break forth, when everything will be put right, when sin and death and shame will be no more, when finally we'll see God face to face and those of us who have accepted his death on our behalf will hear him say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have fought the good fight. You have finished the race. Welcome home. I can't wait for that day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God saying that to you? He's going to say it to us, those of us who are in Christ. Isn't that incredible? He's going to say that to us. We're so full of pride and sin, and yet he's going to say, well done. 
good and faithful servant. You've done it. You've made it home. I can't wait. I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that heaven is more like compensation than restoration. Heaven is not just compensation. Phew, we've made it through that really difficult, troubled life. Wasn't it awful? Now we get paradise. No, it's so much more than that. When we get there, we will look back at a life fully restored. We won't see it here, but there we will see a life fully restored. We will see how he was working everything together. It will all make sense. Even the worst of our moments will have been transformed into something beautiful. We will see that eternity is actually better somehow because of what we suffered. What a comfort. What a hope we have as Christians. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. He weeps with us, he walks with us, he works with us, and he restores us. That's how he comforts us, and that's how we are to comfort others. Not passively, not inappropriately, not brushing people's hurt and mourning under the carpet, but standing with them, weeping with them, asking how we can help, being part of their restoration process. Finally, the world believes today that it can offer greater comfort and greater compassion to people than the church could ever hope to. If you are youth age or in your 20s here this morning, I want you to pay particular attention to this because I see in you a generation marked by compassion, a generation marked by wanting to bring comfort and hope to those who are marginalised confused, judged, and hurting. And that is a good thing. Your desire is rightly placed. We are called to comfort. But I believe the church is in danger of losing a generation of young men and women because they wrongly believe that the world can offer greater comfort and compassion to people than the church can. And I want to say to you this morning that that is just not true. That is a terrible lie that has been sold to you. I hope we've glimpsed this morning that real comfort and real hope can only be found in God, can only be found at the foot of the cross. And if we want to love people, and if we want to be compassionate towards people, then we've got to give them Jesus. We've got to give them Jesus. So to conclude, we live in a world and in a life full of mourning and sorrow and suffering. And yet, and yet we have this incredible hope. 
Jesus, who promises to weep with us and walk with us and work with us and restore us and who has given us eternity instead of death, rejoicing instead of mourning and who will, in the end, wipe away every tear from our eyes and restore us. What a God. What a love. What a hope. What a comfort. Can we have the band come up, please? This morning, as we finish, I'd like us to be those who, like Mary, sit at Jesus' feet and allow him the space to restore us. So often we're like Martha, aren't we? And we're rushing around. I really identify with poor old Martha. Even in our services, we're worshipping or we're listening. What I'd like us to do, we're not going to stand and sing this next song. I want you to sit. And I want it just to be between you and Jesus. I want you to pour out to Jesus how you're feeling the difficult situations you're facing, tell him. Tell him, God, I need your comfort here. I need your help here. Allow him to minister to you. He wants to meet you this morning. He wants to begin to comfort and restore you. You might want to put your head in your hands. You might want to kneel. You might just want to sit there. Whatever helps you, zone out the rest of us and connect with him. God is here by his Holy Spirit this morning. And I believe God would say to us, he is walking in our midst. He is going to be releasing some things over us in the next few minutes. I believe he's going to be releasing weeping over some of us. Some of us need to weep with him. We've been holding it in. And I believe God would say now's the time to let it out. For some of us, he's going to be releasing restoration. For others, joy. For others, hope. Let's just sit at his feet and let him minister to us. I'm just going to pray and then we'll do that. God, we love who you are. We love your hope and your comfort. And we say, God, what we need more than anything is you. What we need is to sit at your feet and let you restore us and let you comfort us and let you minister to us deep in our souls. God, we are broken and we are hurting and we are finding it hard to walk through this life. It seems so full of brokenness and suffering and difficulty. Each day seems so hard just to put one foot in front of another. And God, we say we need you. We know that you have all the riches of heaven at your disposal. But God, all we want is your presence. All we want is for you to come and minister to our souls. Will you come now this morning and restore us? We release restoration in the name of Jesus over this auditorium. We release comfort and hope and joy and weeping. We say, God, will you come and weep with us? Will you come and walk with us? Will you come and work with us? Will you come and restore us? We look to you this morning. We need you, Jesus. We cannot walk through this life without you. We cannot live day to day without you and your comfort and your restoration. Walking through, you know what we're facing. Come and be our strength.